serious cup of coffee. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, welcome. Greetings and salutations in the name of the Lord. I hope you're having a fabuloso day. This is Paige. Here's my coffee. And we are going to take a dive into Romans. Romans is one of these uh, books for me that, like I said before, um, I've had trepidation about covering it because there's so it is so deep. It's Paul's magnum opus, to, I believe, for for the Christian Church, and I'm just so afraid of not doing it justice. But then I reminded myself because I remind myself of this kind of stuff all the time. In fact, I talk with myself all the time. Uh, my students, my music students know this all the time. I talk to myself all the time. Sometimes it's the only way to get any decent adult conversation in, if you know what I mean. So I'm talking to myself about Romans. I'm afraid to do Romans because Romans is such an incredible, like I said, it's Paul's magnum opus. And I'm just, uh, and then I realize, you know, you're not doing this book of Romans for anybody else. If it's so deep and it's so valuable, and if it holds such great truths, what greater book is there for devotionals? I'm going to miss stuff in it. That's okay. I'll get it the next time around. What's interesting to me about doing devotional studies in the, in the, uh, uh, oh, hello, Henry. Yes, here comes Mount Everest. Boy, you got that right. Yes, we are climbing, I am climbing Mount Everest in this one. The great thing about the Bible to me, and what makes it unlike other books, I'm, let me give you this example. I have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe countless times. I've read the entire Narnia Chronicles countless times. And... When I pick up one of those stories to read today, it's like catching up with an old friend, but an old friend that I know really well. And there's nothing in these stories that catches me by surprise anymore, as well written as they are. There are no details that I've missed that I go, oh, I never saw that before. It, it's a well It's an incredibly well-written series of books. C.S. Lewis was a genius. But when I read the Bible... Every time I pick it up, I see something new. I have no idea how the Holy Spirit accomplishes that. So I'm not afraid of Romans anymore. I am going to go into Romans, seeing what God has to say to me this time around. So here's what we got so far. 
we have Paul starting off basically proving his case that Gentiles are dead to God. The Gentile world as a rule, mankind in general. Now, the Jews don't know he's talking about them too. They just think Gentiles. But mankind in general is an enemy of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, not one. No one can boast of anything. So the Jewish contingent in the church saying, yep, that's right, that's the Gentiles, nailed it. Because Paul goes through like a laundry list of the sinful behavior of the culture, the Gentile culture of the day. And you could just hear the Jewish believers going, yep, nailed it, that's perfect. But then he turns his focus to the Jewish contingent and he says, and you, you people of the law, you're no different. And then he lays into them. So the first several chapters, he's basically laying a foundation how no one escapes this one truth. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You can't escape it. It is what it is. All have sinned, Jews and Gentiles alike. We all have sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. And then the question comes up above, then what's the purpose of the law? We were, you can hear the Jewish people going, we were chosen by God. Israel was chosen by God to bring forth Torah, the law, and the prophets, and they're Jewish believers, and Messiah. He's a Jewish Messiah. Yeah, he was a Jewish Messiah, but he wasn't just for the Jews. And then Paul has been spending his time since then addressing the fact that the law isn't what you think it is. And in essence, what God has been showing me so far in Romans is that the purpose of the law is not to deliver righteousness to our feet as a gift to be opened. The law will never take us to righteousness. The law will never put us in right standing with God. The law will never justify us. The law is a flashlight. It's a spotlight. It shines on sin and reveals sin for what it is. And because when the law shines its light on us, we are revealed as who we are. Sinners, falling short of the glory of God. Enemies of God, deserving of one thing, death. And we discover that we cannot escape the law, except, and that's what we're going to talk about today, except through Jesus Christ. So now, Paul has laid the case that Jew and Gentile alike are under the power of sin and are dead, but that through Jesus Christ, life comes and the believer is released from the obligation of the law. He uses the picture of marriage. When a husband dies, the wife is released from her obligations to the husband and she's free to remarry however if she were to walk away from him while he was alive and remarry she'd be guilty of adultery but he said when the husband dies obligations are are severed she is free to pursue a new life 
the picture is we as Christians, we are called elsewhere in Paul's letters, the bride of Christ. But before we were the bride of Christ, we were, if you're going to use this picture, married to the law, which is a harsh and cruel taskmaster, which brings condemnation, death. But when we died to the law, when we bowed our knee to Christ, we died to the law, there's a severing of relationship, and we are no longer under obligation. Just think about it this way. When a husband dies, both parties are released from their obligations in marriage, aren't they? Exactly. That's where we're at right now. So let's go to chapter 8. He starts off by saying, Therefore, and remember what that old preacher said? Whenever you see the word therefore, look and see what it's there for. It's referring to what has just been, been spoken about, and which we've just kind of been reviewing. So I just wrote these two thoughts. Therefore, since Jews and Gentiles are both no different in relation to their original standing before God, that is, dead to God, slave to the law. Therefore, since both Jew and Gentile are dead to the law, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, they are no longer a slave to the law. Therefore, since we are no longer slaves to the law, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That news should be trumpeted from the top of, well, maybe Mount Everest, Henry. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There's been a death in the family. We, who are believers, have died to the law. We are released from that. Baptism, the immersion model, demonstrates this. Buried with him in death, raised to new life in Jesus. The person who goes under the water is different than the person who comes out of the water. Our church uses that whenever we baptize somebody. Buried with him in death, raised to new life. You're a new person. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are a new creation. (laughs) Using the metaphor of marriage that Paul used in previous chapter, how incongruous would it be if a widow, after the funeral of her dead husband, decided to pursue remarrying that corpse? Who He's dead. That's the picture of a believer trying to resubmit to the law, trying to give the law preeminence in their life. Death of one marriage partner releases both partners from their obligations and demands. The dead husband no longer controls the wife. And the wife is free from the control of the husband and free to pursue a new life. Dying to the law sets you free from the obligation to the law. They no longer hold it no longer holds sway over you. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those of us who are in Christ, the Holy Spirit resides in us and we are pursuing the Holy Spirit and his guidance 
Now, guess what the Holy Spirit's going to help us do? The Holy Spirit is going to help us to overcome those areas that the light of the law shines on in our lives. With me, the most destructive part of my nature was my temper. I had a destructive, raging temper. And I'll tell you one short little story about how the Holy Spirit broke the back of that thing. One day, I was incredibly angry, and I don't know what I was angry about, but I was very, very angry, and I'm I'm stomping through the house, and I have a pen in my hand, and I was gripping that pen so tightly that I broke it in two in my hand. Now, as I was as I did that, now I wasn't yelling at anybody. I wasn't yelling at my wife. I wasn't yelling at my children. But I was incredibly angry about something. And I don't know what it was. But I'm walking through the living room. I happened to glance over. Now, we had a dog. Her name was Millie. She's about a 60-pound lab chow mix, Russell a terrier mix of some kind. A good-sized dog, healthy-sized dog, 60 pounds. And when she was young and very tiny, she got used to sitting in our laps. And, and when she became a 60-pound dog, she still thought she was a lap dog, and she'd try to sit in our lap. Well, one of her things for her is that when a thunderstorm or tornado was in the area, she would become incredibly frightened, and she would seek comfort by climbing up into our lap. And she would climb up, and when, when a storm was coming, she'd climb up, and she'd put both her paws on your shoulders, and she would lay her head into you and, like, hug you and just kind of fold herself into you protect me from the storm as I was walking through the living room and I cr- snapped that pen in my hand I happened to look over and Millie is crawling up Glenda's lap and she's looking over her shoulder at me with these big wide frightened eyes and it stopped me dead in my tracks see I thought I was controlling my temper because I wasn't hitting anything I wasn't putting my fist through walls but because I was still succumbing to that rage, Millie, the dog, sensed it. And to her, it was like a storm in the house. And I began to realize the impact that my temper has on those around me. And I was crushed. It took God showing me through an animal what my rage was like and what it was doing. And honestly, from that time to this, I can't recall a time where I lost it like that again. I, can, I believe I can truthfully say that that kind of uncontrollable rage in me has been vanquished. Well, that's an example of the Holy Spirit doing what it has to to fix that area of my life. I know what the law said about anger. And now the Holy Spirit gave me the strength to move my way through it. <laughs> Now, those who live according to the flesh, verse 5, they have their mind set in what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set in what the Spirit desires. I Didn't Paul just say that? I know what I need to do. I know I don't do it. I know what I shouldn't do. I find myself doing that all the time. He just said that in the previous chapter. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. It rebels against it. It pushes back against it. 
Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh make excuses for their behavior. Because face it, we're talking about behavior here. The law shines itself on behavior. The behavior of a person tells you who they belong to, where they come from, what they're related to. James said that. He says, you say you have faith? Excellent. I show you my faith by what I do. Now, our behavior in this world is governed by one of two things. The law or the spirit of God. Now, what's funny is that the law, when you pursue the law, you actually end up fighting against it because you start making excuses. You know, it's not like I'm killing anybody. I just snapped a pen in my hand. I'm not committing murder. Jesus says, you know, if you're angry with your brother in your heart, the Spirit of God says that's murder. If you if you in your heart secretly covet what your neighbor has, you're coveting. So a person who's walking in the flesh makes excuses for their behavior. The life he plants within us. In this life, he plants within us a new way of thinking. That's really what we've just talked about. That must infallibly lead to a new way of living. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Oh, there's no peace like the peace of someone who's in Jesus. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. It fights it. It's angry, bitter. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. For the rest of our days, breathing air on this mud ball called earth, we'll be fighting against the sin that's in our life. We will not be embracing it. If you're, the Spirit of Christ is truly in you, you will be fighting in that. You'll be fighting against that. Your body is subject to death, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. You will struggle, you will fight, you'll have victory. And then ultimately, the Spirit who raised, God who raised Christ from the dead will give life to my mortal body because of the Spirit who lives in me. That's what he says in verse 11. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. Now, Paul is taking a bit of a deeper dive into what James has said. James basically said, show me by what you do whose you are. You have faith? Show me. Paul is saying, if the Spirit of Christ lives in you, Christ will give life to your mortal bodies. You will have victory in this life over the areas of sin in your life. If you do not have Christ in you, you will not gain victory over these things. Because the law shines a light on who you really are and who God really is. The law 
is a ver is if you want to put it this way is a verbal representation of the perfection of the God who calls us. But the law is also an accuser who shines a light in areas of life. Say, see, you can't keep this. This is another reason why you can't be in the presence of God. This is another reason why you can't uh, go to go to be with Him. This is that you're dead, and I own you. That's it. That's the law. But when we die to the law, the sin, the law can no longer say He owns us. In fact, we can say it'll still shine its light on us. Paige, you have a really destructive temper, and the Spirit of God in me says. Let's address this. So we have a path to victory over the very thing that the law would condemn us for. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh, but to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Again, it's behavior. If the Spirit of Christ really, truly lives in you, then you will be engaging in a struggle against the sin in your life. For some people, the sinful behavior might be found in their abuse of alcohol, drugs, pornography, anger, any one of a number of things. If you live according to the Spirit, one by one, you will put to death the misdeeds of the body. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Again, Paul's saying, look, if you're really led by God, that's proof that you're a child of God. If you claim God as your sovereign, but you're not led by the Spirit, if you claim God as your sovereign and your life is not changing, if, in and, 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 I believe he's referencing here, if you claim to be a child of God but are still touting the superiority of the law as something we must conform ourselves to, you're not the child, you're not a child of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, Christians had a tough time, many of them, and it's about to get tougher in Paul's time when he's writing this letter. The Roman government is about to come down on the back of Christians in a very heavy-handed way. And there's going to be persecutions and, and death and destruction rained upon the church from the Roman government. And it's starting. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth 
right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption. We're adopted, but it's like the ceremony hasn't been completed yet. We, are, we have been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee in our life, into the adoption, into the body of Christ, into the family of God. The actual adoption, the actual moment of adoption is yet to come. Remember that picture I showed you of, let's go back up here a second here. Romans, this right here, salvation. I have this picture of salvation. And there's an arrow starting at the point to the left, pointing to the right, and split that arrow into three sections, past, present, and future. Justification is something that happened in the past. We bowed our knee to Christ. I bowed my knee to Christ. I was justified. I declared my allegiance to him. I was justified. Now, the results of that moment in time carry through the present. The results being, I'm being molded into the image of his son. We call it sanctification. That's the present tense. And we are hoping for that day, and our hope is fixed on a day in the future. Now, this hope isn't a hope in something that might not happen. It's a very certain hope. It will happen. And we hope and look into the future for the day that we will be before the God of our salvation and we will be set free from this body of sin and death. That's called glorification. We were saved so that we are being saved so that one day we will be saved. Justification, sanctification, glorification. That's what Paul's talking about down here. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. There's going to come a day when this overweight, broken down body of mine will be cast aside. And I will be in the presence of the God of the universe. And I will stand before him. And Jesus, who is my advocate, he will say he's one of mine. And I will hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your Lord. Mm. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that's seen is not hope at all, is it? Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. All right. Hope is looking forward. I don't hope to have a Taylor 300 series guitar. I have one. I might hope to have a Taylor 800 series guitar because I don't have that yet. But that's still iffy. I might get it. I might not. I'm hoping for it. But this is not that kind of hope. This is the hope that's looking forward to a guaranteed end of the story. And the guaranteed end of the story is, well done, Paige, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your Lord. For in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Now, Paul is talking about the relationship, what happens in our life. We are free from the law. 
Now we're married to Christ, and this is the process of what's going on in our new relationship. And we are the bride of Christ. Christ intercedes for us. He, Christ, who knows our hearts, knows exactly what to say, how to pray. And we know that in all things, therefore, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Christ wants brothers and sisters. That's us. We are co-heirs with him, and he is going to be the firstborn among many of his own, of his new brothers and sisters. We're being adopted into his family. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Don't have time to go into the whole predestination thing. Maybe someday. But just know this. You are so secure in your salvation with Jesus. You won't, you, you can't fall out of that. You are married to him. You are the bride of Christ. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Now, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Couldn't be said of you when you were under the slave when you were a slave to the law. The law broke you. The law crushed you. The law condemned you with no hope of salvation. God, through Jesus Christ, has redeemed you. He paid the price that the law required, death. And he was raised from the dead. And we were raised with him. Now our connection with the law is severed. We are no longer under the mastery of the law. Yes, the law is still there, but it has been relegated down. It has been demoted from your master to an opponent that can be beaten. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, or anything else in all creation, None of these will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are so secure in your faith as to defy description. All right. There's a lot there that could still be unpacked, but God's word to me today in this devotion is simply this. I am part of the bride of Christ. As such, the law no longer ultimately has power over me. That marriage relationship has been dissolved because I died with Christ and I was raised with him in res- in, with his resurrection. The law has been demoted from my being my uh, overbearing husband, if you will, a master, evil master. It's been demoted to being that of an opponent, one that can be beaten through Jesus Christ. Whew. Well, all right, that's enough for today. My brain is reeling. Uh, 
I might come back to some of this tomorrow, or I might go into chapter nine tomorrow. I don't know. My, like I said, my mind is just absolutely swimming right now. God is so good. This page, here's my coffee. Thank you for joining me today. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Man. God, you're good. And coffee is wonderful.